0: The whole Bible is about God with us, so I love that. Um, If you can't tell, I'm like super amped up this morning. Uh, Yes, more so than normal. It is my last time to preach for a while, so I know some of you are like, "Aw," some of you are fighting back uh, applause. So all that to say, uh, I have a lot to say. And I know it's Senior Sunday and it's like full today, but I have a lot to say. So it's gonna be a little bit longer, I've let you guys off easy the last couple of weeks with some like 35 or 40-minute sermons. Um, Today is not that day, so if you are ADD um, or you have the high-definition version, ADHD, I hope you took your meds this morning uh, because we're going to be here. But we're going to continue the morning in prayer. Um, So this morning we're going to pray for the Carlson family. So the Carlson family uh, just attended their last service at Imprint in Baltimore last week. For Easter and so now they're taking some time off on their way here. They're stopping at Walt Disney World and then uh, Kyle will be the teaching pastor here at Cross Point Fellowship. So we're going to pray for them and their transition. Uh, I was texting him this morning and uh, he said he was so excited to uh, spit the gospel in front of the Cinderella Castle in Disney World <laughs> to which I replied, I hope, I hope, I hope the Mickey Mouse wizard person hears the gospel. So there's that. Um, and then we're going to pray for the unreached people, the Japanese people of Japan. So, this one's near and dear to my heart. Um, l- listen, Japanese people, so many people in Japan, so many. They're a first world country. They're really, really, really like industrially advanced, uh, but they are so, so lost. I mean, 1.2% Christian, and only 0.6% of that is actually evangelical. Um, so it's a super, super, super dark place. Um, when I was there, there was, this, uh, there was this main intersection called Shibuya, and thousands and thousands of people crossed that uh, every single day. Um, matter of fact, every single hour. Uh, I sat like on the second floor of a Starbucks looking down. And as the light turned green, or I guess the light turned red, and the pedestrians were able to cross. I mean, it was just tons and tons of people going across, and it just like broke my heart to know that the vast majority uh, did not know Jesus at all. So it's super, super uh, dark place over there. Main religion is Buddhism. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump off in prayer for the Carlson family and uh, the Japanese people. Um, God, you are so. Uh, so holy, God. We just praise you for um, just bringing the Carlson family to us, God. We uh, praise you for that uh, application process and that pastor search shenanigans that uh, we have kind of undertaken in the last year, God. We just, uh, we love, love, love that you are so faithful uh, in bringing a godly family here to uh, just shepherd this flock, God. We pray that they rest well, God. We pray that they enjoy uh, Disney as a family, God, we pray um, that you are refreshing them um, every single day, um, and when they land here in Greenville, Texas, God, we just pray that you burden uh, Kyle for, uh, for ministry uh, to us, God. We pray that uh, this transition just go um, seamlessly, seem- um, or at least as good as you so intend, God. Um, we just pray that uh, that they are enjoying you this morning and spending time with their family. Um, and we, uh, we pray that we're excited to receive them here in the next couple of weeks. Um, God, we also pray for uh, the Japanese people. God, um, God is such a dark place over there, God. Um, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't seem like it should be because they're so advanced in technology. Um, they're so up and coming as a world power. Uh, but nonetheless, God, they do not know you, Father. Um, God, they have no hope on the day of judgment, um, at least the vast majority of them, God. And we pray, uh, we pray against that, God. We pray that your name be made great there, God. We pray that you get glory there this morning, Father. Um, we pray that uh, there is, even though it is a small part, uh, we pray that there is people just praising your name, God. God, we pray that you raise up people to go to Japan, Father. We pray that you uproot people from maybe their comfort um, and uh, transplant them in uh, Japan, God. If not, God, we pray that we are burdened for that people and that we lift them up regularly to you, God. God, we pray for our time this morning. Uh, God, we ask that you just fill this place. Uh, We ask that you uh, allow us to experience you, Father. Uh, We we pray for an extra measure of attention and patience this morning, Um, but ultimately, God, we pray uh, that we just worship you well. Um, It's in your holy, heavenly name we pray. Amen. All right, so what the morning looks like. Um, I'm going to read our passage, and then I'm going to go on a not-so-brief-ish monologue, and then we're going to expose our passage, and then I've got three application points. And then we're going to take the supper. Um, And then I'm going to come and give the benediction, which will cap off the end of the worship portion of our morning. And then we have Senior Sunday. So we're going to honor the seniors as they're going out uh, from us this morning. So I think there's like a video and looks like some gift bags. So I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, if you're willing and able, let's go ahead and please stand for the reading of God's Word. We will be in 1 John chapter 4. Verse 18 through 21. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he can see, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so we got a taboo topic this morning. We're going to talk about fear and anxiety. So I think some of you are probably like, "Uh, eh, maybe I should have slept in this morning." Probably true, but you're here, so let's go through this together. So we are, as a people of God, striving to walk in the light. First John, chapter one, verse six through 10, talks about basically walking in the light, right? Being known. So I think it's pretty fair to say um, that we should all kind of consider that this morning. Um, and by show of hands, and I, um, and I know some of you just like, ah, but like by show of hands, how many of you struggle with fear and anxiety to some degree or the other, whether that be every day or periodically? I love it. Like you can look around and see that about 70% of the people's hands flew up without even waiting at all. And some of us that our hands were down were probably too fearful to actually raise our hands, thus struggling with fear. Okay, fear is really, really big. It's a part of our everyday life. And I think that's something that we can all agree on, that it's something that we struggle with. Some of us fear uh, and anxiety actually consumes us daily. Others of us, it's just a periodic thing. It's just from time to time. But listen, I get it. I I was super fearful when I walked up here and saw 4,500 candles on fire (laughs) in front of a wooden podium, okay? It's okay to be scared sometimes. And so hear me say this, hear me say this, that fear is not always bad, okay? There is a righteous fear and an unrighteous fear. For example, candles or a dark alleyway, healthy fear, okay? Healthy fear. Um, There are also some fear that are unhealthy and unrighteous. Well, um, I think we should also... Uh, point out that 1 John uh, chapter 4 is taken way out of context, way too much. Okay, 1 John chapter 4 is not talking about daily fears. And what I mean by that is that if you read 1 John chapter 4 and you ingrain it into your heart, you still might be scared of public speaking. Okay, that's a very real thing. You're not going to say, I am no longer afraid to stand up in front of people And speak, because perfect love has cast out all of my fear of people making fun of me. Okay, that's not what 1 John is saying. That might sound good. That might kind of like tickle our ears, but that is not what 1 John is talking about. So, there are some passages that are really good about that. I think Yam studied uh, one this Wednesday, Mark 4. Really good about daily fears and anxieties. Matthew 6, 24 through, or 26 through 34, 25 through 34, really good about anxiety and fear on a daily basis. But again, 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 through 21 is not saying that. You see, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 through 21 is talking about the fear of death, specifically the day of judgment. It's kind of a taboo topic, right? This is a whole like judgment type of uh, sermon. Not only judgment, but like the day of judgment. That's what this is talking about. So total rhetorical question. Please don't raise your hands on this one. But um, has anybody ever had any like near-death experiences? So my mom is a nurse. And she used to tell me all the time growing up that like I had a malfunctioning frontal lobe which means that I have like this sense of consequence that just isn't there. So maybe I've brushed up against death a little bit more than I should be um, admitting. But non-rhetorical question, has anybody ever been skydiving? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. So if you looked around and saw some hands up, avoid those people at all costs. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely nuts. Um, but Uh, Skydiving really has an interesting confrontation with fear. It's something that, you know, like, you're kind of almost meeting death every time you do it. There's something about, like, walking up to the edge of a plane. First of all, the door's open, and you're 14,000 foot in the air, and you do this, like, radar foot thing where you're trying to find the edge, and then you kind of, like, get up to it, and you look down, and there is death. I mean, there is the ground 14,000 feet away. So it's constantly right there in front of you. And if you're an idiot and you keep doing that, you get that over and over and over again. So you kind of meet this fear head on a whole lot. So um, I kind of put that um, how the people of 1 John chapter 4 are feeling. Okay, They are in a time where meeting death and that whole eternal aspect is at the forefront of their mind at all times. They see it constantly, day in and day out. And so is this relevant to us today? Absolutely. But I would say this, that it is it's easy for us to ignore the day of judgment. Okay, it's really easy for us to ignore the day of judgment because we're not constantly confronted by that. You can see all kinds of things to be afraid of on the news. You can see car wrecks. You can see uh, COVID cases. You can see wars but I don't think I've ever turned on CNN or Fox or whatever your news outlet is and saw like them talking about the Day of Judgment. It just doesn't come up a whole lot in our, in our day. But it's something that I think we should be very, very, very concerned about. There is no getting around it. The Day of Judgment is coming for us all. Okay, It is a biblical certainty. Those things that we see on the news or social media, they're really just, maybes at best, right? I mean, they're, they might happen, and they might impact our life now in the one year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, or something like that, but judgment reverberates through eternity, right? We're talking about the 20,000-foot view, or the 20,000-year view, you might say, so we're not talking about this, like, 20-year view. We're talking about an eternal perspective, so, uh, I do want to say uh, this is not like a Turner Burn type message. That's not what I'm up here for. Um, but I did read a stat on the internet that like 99.9% of people will die. I think it's science. Obviously, I'm totally joking. 100% of people are going to die. So, it's something that we should have a view of. Um, so, also, we should let this day of judgment fuel our life and our mission. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, verse 14, and that word Savior is actually like an outward calling or a missional um, sharing type of word. And so what has John chapter 4 told us up to this point? We know we are good. We know we believe the right thing, all right? We are abiding in Christ. We are clinging to, we are holding to Christ. So now what's next? Now there's about that whole eternity thing. There's that whole judgment concept that we have to deal with. So how does this work? What do we believe on that? So I don't have a whole lot of like satellite passages or like gymnastics to do. We're going to stay in 1 John pretty much the whole morning. So um, I'm going to go ahead and expose the verses and I'm going to read it, expose it, read it, expose it, do that whole thing. I think you guys got the pattern by now. But uh, before I do that, as I was reading this, I kind of noticed this super, super cool pattern um, with 1 John chapter uh, 4, 18 through 21, but I'm gonna back up and go 17 through 21. There's this really cool pattern that we call chiasm, and and I've mentioned it before, but it's basically like this sandwich type of structure. And so verse 17 and verse 21 are really, really positively toned verses. They're super positive. And then you've got verse 18 and verse 20, and they're like kind of negatively toned. So you've got positive, positive, negative, negative, and then you have verse 19. Now verse 19 is the whole point of this thing. It is a beautiful crescendo, okay? So we've got the most amazing, God-honoring compliment sandwich right here in verses 17 through 21. Um, So again, I covered a little bit of 17 last week, but I am going to kind of go back. You see, last week was Easter, and I wanted everybody to get to lunch on time. This week, I don't really care. So we're going to go into verse 17. Um, Verse 17 tells us how to have something that everybody wants. Verse 18 tells us how to get rid of something that everybody wants to get rid of. You see, verse 17 talks about how to have confidence or how to have boldness in the day of judgment. And verse 18 tells us how to cast out fear from our lives. Piper puts it like this. He says the main point of this text is clear. John wants to help us enjoy confidence before God. He does not want us to be paralyzed or depressed by fear of judgment. Nothing would make John happier, like it says in verse one, or, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, than to produce a generation of Christians who were utterly confident that God would accept them on the judgment day. You see, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 through 21 There is a way to approach the day of judgment with fearlessness and confidence. No one has to approach death scared of the outcome. You see, we don't have to be like a Jehovah's Witness or something like that, where we just have to do a whole bunch of stuff, cross our fingers, and really, really hope that we pass muster on the day of judgment. We don't have to be that way. We can have confidence in that answer. So let's go ahead and dig into the text. I'm going to read verse 17 and then expose. So verse 17. By this is the love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. Now it's really, really important here to understand the word perfected. Perfected is different. You see the English word perfected uh, means you know, first there was something, and it had a whole bunch of flaws in it. And then by some process, you take those flaws out, and then you perfect this thing, and now you're left with something that is without blemish, right? It's, it's completely perfect in its whole. But the Greek word for perfect is completely different than that, right? It's this Greek word, uh, teleos. It's where we get the word uh, telephone, telegraph, telescope, telephoto, teleport, It's a different word altogether. It really describes things that have a goal, right? Telephone, we have a goal of calling, and our voice goes from here to there. It means something is being completed or accomplished or fulfilled, or it reaches that goal. You see, teleos is the act of maturing from going through the necessary stages to reach an end goal. In other words, it is developing into completion by fulfilling the necessary process or journey. Think about like those old school um, pirate telescopes that start like this big and then they extend out and extend out one stage at a time, one piece at a time, until it's functioning at its full strength or its full effectiveness. You know, it's basically a journey or a process. And so... Uh, There's this old adage that I think we all know, right? Practice, practice, practice. Practice makes? No, that is not true at all. You've got to get that out of your belief system, right? Practice does not make perfect, right? Practice is growth. Practice means improvement. Practice means progress. Practice means permanence. But it does not mean perfect. Practice is the journey to perfection. And so um, that's this whole idea. We've got to get out of this... English word of, well, I've got to be perfect, or this thing is perfect, and get it in this mindset of this thing is being perfected. This thing is on a journey to completeness or wholeness. So, something that perfect does not imply, it does not imply whether the process getting there is flawless or not. Let me say that again. It does not imply that the process getting there is flawless. You have an end goal, and you are marching to that end goal. This same word is used all over the New Testament. We could spend a lot of time going over every single instance, but for, that, for the sake of time, um, I'm going to just read a couple of verses. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to go quick, um, but I'm just going to read a few verses that just give this idea to us. John 4, 34, uh, Jesus says he is going to do the will of the one who sent him, that is his father, and accomplish his work. So this word accomplish is this teleos. It's the same, same exact Greek word. Does that mean that God's work is imperfect and Jesus has to come and do something and perfect it and then present it to the world to make it flawless? No, not at all. It means that Jesus has an assignment to God, from God, and he puts it into work and thereby accomplishing it or completing it. In John 19, 28, Jesus says, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. That word fulfill, perfected, is is the exact same word. Does that mean that the scriptures are imperfect? Not at all. You don't take imperfect scripture, work on it a little bit, and then present it flawless. That's not what this word is saying. All right, There are promises. Promises are given. They are not complete yet, so Jesus fulfills them or accomplishes them, and they are perfected, and they are heading towards their intended goal. This is that word, perfected. Last example. This is my favorite. James 2, 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar. So that word justified, same exact word. Um, In other translations, uh, like the NIV, I believe it says completed, right? Same exact word. Does that mean that once Abraham offered up Isaac, that from then on he was sinless and perfect? No, absolutely not at all. So he was not flawless All that means is that Abraham's faith was internal, it was subjective, and then it became real and active. The very second that Abraham raised up that knife to come down, his faith became real. It was perfected in the sense that the journey was started. He was on course. His faith got feet, right? His telescope was unfolding. That's kind of what the idea is there. So let's go back to verse 17. Uh, Or, I guess, stay in verse 17, but actually go back and kind of pick apart verse 17. First clause in verse 17, by this. So that's very, very important. By this. That is to say that your love for each other, as in your love for each other, God's love is put into action and so reaches its appointed goal. It does not mean flawlessly implemented. Our love does not mean flawlessly implemented at all. What it really means is perfected love is not just to talk about Christ. It is to share Christ. Perfected love doesn't mean to just talk about the hungry. It means to feed the hungry. Perfected love doesn't mean to just look at a floundering new believer and talk about them. It means actually discipling that new believer you see, there is an active component to it. There is a component of action. It perfects itself in the implementation. It's love that is not just the half-Christian. See, the half-Christian is this like idea that you, you know what to do, like you know exactly what you should do. It's inside, it's subjective, it's internal. But then there's this other half of the Christian that is outward, right? It should should be an outpouring, and that makes this whole Christian. So there's a second clause in uh, verse 17. It says, in the love that is perfected in us, so that, right? These words, so that, are very important. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. So what is the source of our confidence, By putting God's love into real action among us, you gain confidence among us in the day of judgment. So putting your love into action gives you confidence. It doesn't mean we gain confidence in sinlessness or perfection, right? That would contradict what it says in chapter 1, verse 10, where it says, uh, we gain confidence, or excuse me, where it says, if we say we have no sin, then we are a liar. That's not what this word means in the New Testament. We don't gain confidence by sinlessness or by perfection. We gain confidence by putting our money where our mouth is, by putting our love into action. See, 1 John 3:18, and I'll read 1 John 3:18 uh, real quick. It has this same feel as what we're discussing today. First John 3:18, little children, that word technia, little children. Let us not love in word or deed, or excuse me, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Little children, let your love be perfected. Let God's love be perfected in you. It would be imperfect, incomplete, unaccomplished if we just talked about it. Or we felt about it. Or we thought about it. It would be Imperfect until it comes into deed and truth where it is perfected. Let love be perfected, love in deeds, not just words. And then the result is in verse 19 of chapter 3 By this we shall know that we are of the truth. There is reassurance there. So you want to have assurance before God? Let your love be real in action, in kindness, and in deeds. So our text really isn't saying anything new, right? Love each other. That is what we've been talking about for like four months now. It should sound like a broken record. Love each other, love each other, love each other. But today, he kind of just spells it out pretty plainly. The love that gives you confidence for the day of judgment is love that is not imperfect or just inside. It is perfected in real, active, Nitty-gritty, rubber-meets-the-road, love. When you put your money where your mouth is, you overcome that little inconfidences that you have. You end up having confidence for the day. So last clause in verse 17. Verse 17 is the longest. It's fine. We'll, be, we'll get there. But last clause in, the verse, in verse 17, uh, it says, Because as he is, so are we in the world. You see, God won't condemn people that are like his son. God will not condemn people that are like his son. If you're like Jesus, you won't have to be afraid on the judgment day. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be perfect like Jesus. That is not what it's saying at all. It's saying is if your life is on the same course as Jesus, if you have the same goal and the same intentions as Jesus, then you don't have to have fear on the day of judgment. You can have confidence in that because as he is, so are you. So to sum up verse 17, one commentator puts it like this. When you love each other with love that is more than just talk, when, you love, when the love of God reaches its practical goal of action in your life and thus is perfected, you will experience a deep, unshakable confidence before God. Much talk and few deeds give very little assurance. So verse 18 says the exact same thing as verse 17, except for verse 17 is nice and and sunshine and rainbows and puppies, and verse 18 is a little bit more negatively toned, but both give the exact same answer. I'll go ahead and read verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, the reason there is no fear in love is because there is no punishment in being a loving person. I've never once heard somebody say, Man, I really wish I just wasn't so loving today. Like, I really messed up, I was way too loving. I don't think you'll ever hear that, and I don't think, parents, you'll ever get on to your children for saying, or for, for like being way too loving to their siblings. Like That just doesn't happen. There's no fear of punishment in love whatsoever, and also, nice guys don't finish last. Okay, That is a complete lie. I just want to throw that out there for what it's worth, but there is no threat of punishment when you love. This punishment used here is like in the eternal sense. There's there's one other time that this exact word, punishment, is used. It's in Matthew 25, 46, and it's when Jesus is actually talking about the day of judgment. So it's like the same exact um, scenario as what John is talking about here. You see, we can love all day long and not have any fear that God is going to zap us. Like that's That's something we can be excited about, right? We don't have any fear of getting zapped, Loving all day. When you love all day with love that is perfect, not flawless, but active love. When you love with active love, accomplishing love, deeds love, and not just talk love, but walk love, fear is taken like a big rock and cast out. Now something to notice here, this word cast, like fear is cast out, is very, very active. It is an active phrase. And I hope you hear me say the words love and active about 4,000 times this morning because one of them might sink in. I promise. Okay. Verse 19. Let's go read verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Simple, right? We love because he first loved us. So why do we love? Because he first loved us. How do we love? Because he showed us this love is a gift from him. It was demonstrated eternally on the cross. God's love always takes initiative, it takes action. It is the catalyst. And our love is just the response to it. We love because he first loved. It is a command. Something to note here it is a command, not a suggestion. We love is a command not a suggestion. And then verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother." So if anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. This is the exact same thing that verse 17 and 18 are talking about, right? This is that chiasmic structure. If if your love is only on the inside and it isn't put into action, if there are no deeds to follow, if you're only bordering on that half-Christian, internal only, if your rubber hasn't met the road then you're lying to yourself, and you're lying to others. You haven't been captured by the love of Christ, which according to these verses, love should ooze out of us in action. There should be an action component to it. So how can we say we love God when we don't do anything that he has commanded us to do? Can you even execute a command to someone who is standing right in front of you, someone that you can see, someone that is like very tangible, someone that you can high-five or hug. That's what this verse is talking about. If you can't do that, if you can't do this to someone who is in front of you, then how can you love Christ? So John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me is loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and show myself to him. Remember John 14, right after the foot washing of Jesus, right in the midst of the Last Supper, Judas has already left, and Jesus is imploring his disciples that whoever loves me, whoever does what I say, he is the one who actually loves me. And remember, he's leaving by way of the cross, and the mark of a true disciple is that you love each other. And why should we do that? Because we are commanded to. And according to John, Christ will show himself to you. And in 1 John it says, this will give us confidence in the day of judgment. We don't have to fear our eternal situation. We don't have to fear anything in our eternal situation. And listen, the last thing I want to do is to make light of very visceral and daily fears and anxieties but I want to put them into perspective, right? We're talking about the 20,000-year view, not the one- or two-year view. So I read this really fascinating story uh, in, in one of Mark Devers' books, and I think it fits this so perfectly, so I'm going to read it. It's a really cool, modern, we'll call it parable or something. Um, but I'll read it verbatim. So we got Bob, and he's, he's, a, he's an entrepreneur, right? Suppose Bob starts a business and puts me in charge. Then Bob travels to Europe for some business deals and leaves very, very, very careful instructions. While he is away, Bob sends me a few more letters with further instructions about what should be done around the office. Suppose then Bob returns several weeks later and finds the office in ruins. The receptionist sits there listening to a local disco station while ignoring the ringing telephone I don't know why he chose disco, but he went with it, so we're going to go with it. So the receptionist isn't paying attention at all while the phone's ringing. Everyone else is playing checkers, chess, or cards, or Wordle, or whatever. There is trash in the halls, and Bob's email is filled with angry customers canceling their orders. So Bob walks up to me and says, Neil, what happened here? Didn't you get my letters? And I smile and say, oh yeah, I got your letters. Not only did I get your letters, I loved reading them. Bob, they were wonderful letters. You know, those letters were so good that I photocopied them and handed them out to everybody in the office. They liked them so much that we got together and had letter studies. We gathered after work and studied these letters together. We also had them framed, and we put them all over our walls. Don't you see them, Bob? They were great letters. We also, uh, I even started memorizing some, and I had my kids memorize some too. Bob, phenomenal letters. And then I think at this point you could see, well, Neil, why didn't you actually do what was written in the letters, okay? And what do you mean you love the letters? Because of course you don't love the letters. And so you kinda see where I'm getting at here. There is an active component. Love is action. And so I feel like this entire thing has been kind of an application-driven sermon, but to add on top of that, I've got three application points, three quick application points. Does your love come with action, or is it dead? We might have all the doctrine right. We might live morally solid lives, but when it comes to our love for others, if the rubber doesn't meet the road, if we don't put our money where our mouth is, then we have missed it. We can be as emotionally attached to the word Christian as we want to be, right? We can be emotionally drawn to and attached and clinging to this word Christian, but if there is nothing that follows it, then you're not following Christ. We are not true disciples. I think and it is important to mention here love does not look like making fee- people feel good all the time. Okay, love does not make Or love does not look like making people feel good all the time. Love doesn't mean that you are a pushover, all right? There is a serving aspect, and sometimes serving hurts. Love might look like hurting someone's feelings that you really care about to call sin out in their lives. Love might look like disciplining your child versus letting them get away with everything. Loving a friend might look like having a really, really, really hard conversation, But nonetheless, that is love. So does your love come with action? Number two, love and action gives you confidence in the day of judgment. Love others and be confident. Confidence, not complacency. Those are two very, very different things. Complacency ignores, and that is that head in the sand mentality. But confidence leans in. Confidence doesn't shy away. We shouldn't cower before the day of judgment. It should push us to truly live and not to put our head in the sand and pretend it is not coming. It should push us to share the love of Christ. If you have fear in your heart, right now, this morning, then it's really simple. Go and love somebody this afternoon. It is literally that easy. We have to kill this selfishness that has a tendency to rule us because if we don't, it will steal our confidence when we are wrapped up in ourselves and we go through the day trying to increase our levels of security or trying to surround ourselves with more and more comforts we come to the end of the day weak uncertain insecure and powerless love in action gives confidence for the day of judgment and then number 3 last one if you don't hear anything else this morning if you don't hear anything else this morning Listen to this one. You cannot love your way into the love of God. You cannot love your way into the love of God. Like we learned about last week, abide in Him, and through that, our love is perfected. It does not say, perfect your love, and then abide in Him. It says, abide in Him, and your love will be perfected. Abiding is where the process takes place, and the sequence is really really important, and that should all give us a little bit of sigh of relief, because this isn't a works thing. This is a remaining in thing. This is a steadfast thing. This is a cling to abiding thing. So with that being said, let's pray. God, you are so, so good. Your love is so incredible. As we focus on each other As we have been loved, we pray that we show that love through us. I pray that we, your people, would mature in love, and in doing so, initiate loving one another. I pray that we transform our hearts, God. I pray that you transform our hearts by your gospel. Give us your heart for your people. Help our love take action. Help us to be a people that walk the walk and talk the talk. Give in us a heart for service. Help us enjoy pouring ourselves out for one another. And in doing so, let it be worship to you. Holy Spirit, equip us and guide us this week. Put us in situations that show you to others. God, we love you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.